Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. We have a lot of people who are ill today. Um, and <clears throat> I ask that throughout our worship that you be in prayer for them and for their recovery. Uh, this has been a rather difficult siege with whatever this virus is that, that is, is going around. And it, and it seems to take weeks for people to recover from it. To our lessons. Malachi is one of the 12 minor prophets. His book is the last book in Hebrew scripture. His name, which may be an alias, means my messenger in the Hebrew. His fifth century writing is post-exilic and was composed after the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Malachi is not mentioned in any other book of the Old Testament. However, he is mentioned four times in the New Testament. Malachi's prophecy addressed four problem areas. First, he confronts priests about their laxity in liturgical practices, specifically the reckless acceptance of inappropriate animals for use in making sacrifices. Hebrew scripture was very clear in the book of Leviticus about what the criteria were for sacrificial animals who were supposed to be unblemished. The priests um, in Malachi's time were accepting animals for sacrifice that didn't measure up to the standard. So the people weren't giving to God the best from what they had. Second, Malachi addresses the manner in which priests were corrupting the covenant of Levi. Third, the prophet confronts the rank and file who were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to intermarry with foreigners. Finally, he confronts the withholding of the prescribed tithe. The people were disobedient in their failure to provide the Lord's portion of 10% of what they were blessed with. The people responded to the prophet's message by pledging their loyalty to the Lord, which was registered with the compilation of a book of their signatures, indicating their desire to conform. Malachi also announced what he called the Day of the Lord, which was described as a day when evildoers would receive judgment and it would also be a day of healing for those who fear the name of the Lord. So the three big issues that were confronting the people were the liturgical laxity in the form of impure sacrifices and the way in which priests were shirking their covenantal responsibilities. Divorce and intermarriage with foreign women, 
and the avoidance of the tithe. The prophet considered these offenses to be serious. So what are we to get from these lessons that Malachi pointed out to the people many, many, many centuries ago? First, what we do in worship is important. Does what we do conform to the tradition that has become Christian faith? Clergy have a responsibility to ensure that conformance. St. John Chrysostom said that the road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops. I fear that he might be right. And probably a number of priests will be included in that paving as well. It is important for us not to fail in our assigned task to pass on the faith as it was once delivered to the saints. Secondly, there's a caution in Malachi about spousal selection. How careful are we in selecting mates? For some of us, that's a new thing. In our time, there's a lot of what my father called love cafeteria style, which means that you take what looks good and pay for it later. What are the criteria that we use in mate selection? Unfortunately, in our time, we rely pretty heavily on our feelings. Consequently, we end up confusing love with lust. Love is not a feeling. Love is a way of being in the world. Lust is one of the passions. The two are not equivalences. Even in our conversation, we talk about falling in love, right? As if when you're falling, that's something you don't have any volition over or any control. If you're falling, the movement toward the floor is out of your control, as evidenced by your mother-in-law. When you selected a spouse, to what extent was their faith position a consideration in your mind? In talking with your children about selecting partners for this life, to what extent do we encourage them to look for people who share their values of faith the, the objection in Malachi to the intermarrying of Jews with foreigners, other than that they were divorcing their Jewish wives to do so, was that these foreigners served other gods. They were not people of Jewish faith. 
What often happens is that Christians marry non-Christians, and before you know it, the Christian has backslidden significantly and in many cases has fallen away from the faith. How often have you witnessed that among your friends and acquaintances? How often have you heard a parent make a comment about their child? Well, he or she wasn't raised that way. Jesus would later tell his listeners that where their money is, there their heart is also. The post-exilic Jews were, were shirking their duty to give a tithe of their income to God. A tithe is 10%, which, by the way, is the biblical directive. God blesses us, and the requirement is to return a portion of those blessings to him, which in biblical times involved contributions to the temple. In giving the prescribed amount, the people had more skin in the game. When I was in seminary, I had a church history professor who was married to a Jewess. Each year, they met with their rabbi to review their finances, after which the rabbi informed them what it would cost them to continue to be members of the synagogue. Can you imagine what would happen if Christian pastors and priests were to do that today in Christian circles? Most of us today are more takers in our relationship with God than we are givers. Malachi's prophecy is apropos to us in our time. This lesson is included in the lectionary this time of year because many parishes do their pledges and their uh, stewardship campaign at the end of the church year, which, by the way, is next week. You see, these prophecies are included in our canon of Scripture because they speak to our needs just as they addressed the issues of their time. Now, we are a parish that is small in number. I had this conversation with our financial secretary this week. And um, we have the good fortune of having people here who are pretty good givers. Unfortunately, with a lot of preaching that goes on, um, we end up doing what's often been referred to as preaching to the choir. Because the people that are here are people who value what it is that all this is about. There is a message that we need to get to the people out there. We're working on that too. Our lesson from 2 Thessalonians opens with a directive to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from St. Paul and his fellow teachers. Paul says that as a model, he was not idle and dependent on any of them, even though as an agent of God, he had a right to do so. But during the time that he sojourned with them, he paid his own way through his own toil and labor. 
Paul says that he and his band of teachers, quote, worked day and night, end quote. According to St. Paul, anyone who refuses to work should not eat. Apparently, there were people in Thessalonica who were just idle. They had a lot of time on their hands and spent a lot of their time functioning as busybodies who were intrusive into the lives of other people in ways that it was inappropriate for them to be. My mother always said that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. So it would seem as if these people to whom Paul is referring inserted their nose into the business of other people in ways that just wasn't productive. So St. Paul's admonition is that these people should be doing their work quietly and should be earning their own living. St. Paul is establishing a structure for distributing resources within the church. Able-bodied people within the community of faith are expected to work in order to provide for themselves. Sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. Sloth is laziness and idleness. It's a kind of withdrawal from the demands of living. Sloth is also an avoidance of work with a preference for the pursuit of pleasurable activities. Now, children need to play in order to learn how to structure their lives. It's what children do. Their work is their play. Unfortunately, many adults never outgrow the desire to play. In another place, St. Paul talked about being a child during which time he thought and acted like a child. However, when he became a man, he put away childish things. In our time, we have a lot of men who are little more than grown boys. The only thing you can say about them is they're bigger. Carl Jung called them the Pueri Eternus, the eternal boys. These are men who are physically grown up, but they've never stepped up to become real men psychologically, emotionally, or spiritually. The motto in Benedictine communities is ora et labor. Pray and work. Benedictine spirituality emphasizes manual labor. Behavior and what we do is important. How we conduct ourselves in the world is important. St. Paul tells us that we are not to grow weary in doing that which is right. In the gospel lesson, some were speaking about the elegance of the temple with its fine adornments. And I'm sure it was all that and more. And then Jesus interjects into the conversation a prediction that the day will come when the temple will once again be destroyed and not a single stone will be left on top of another. As you might imagine, the group was alarmed at hearing that news. And so they asked him for a sign so they could 
anticipate when that day was coming. The people who interacted with Jesus were always looking for a sign. Um, in spite of the fact that there were many signs among them that they, that they didn't see or read. But they wanted a sign. So Jesus instructed them to be careful and vigilant not to be led astray by demagogues and people who sought to deceive them. Jesus said that there would be people who would come pretending to be something they're not. Jesus admonished them not to be deceived and seduced by malevolent imposters. Which begs the question, are we familiar enough with the tenets of the faith so we would recognize when someone was trying to lead us down the primrose path? There are two clusters of events that Jesus identifies as being associated with what will occur. There will be significant political conflicts and natural disasters. The natural disasters will be things like earthquakes and famines and plagues. So there will be events that happen out there in the world, in the environment around us. But in addition to these external events, there will be personal devastations. Individual followers of Jesus can expect to be arrested, prosecuted, persecuted. Jesus' listeners are to view these events as opportunities. These times of adversity contain possibilities for the kingdom. It's almost as if we're to look forward to them because of their potentialities for witness to the realities of the gospel. So, are we prepared to give an account for the faith that is in us. Now, Jesus says to them, don't worry about what you're going to say. In the evangelism program that we've been doing on Sunday evenings um, that was developed by Father Mark in the Anglican Council, there are three dimensions to evangelism. Demonstration, proclamation, transformation. We talked last time that we met about the demonstration part. This is how it is that our lives serve as witness. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. So I would hope that with the way that you live your life on a day-to-day -day basis, that other people could look at you and they can see Jesus in you. That when they look in your face, they can see Jesus reflected back to them. And that they can tell that you're not like all other people. Tonight, we're going to talk about the second phase of proclamation, which is 
what it is that we say. Now, a lot of us are sort of reticent about talking to other people about faith because we're worried, we're frightened that we may not know what to say. Jesus said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. Just step up. Trust me. It'll go the way it's supposed to go. And then the final dimension is transformation, which is really the work of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that I can do to transform your life. But there's a whole lot that Jesus Christ can do through the person of the Holy Spirit to transform your life. And when, when, when we make ourselves receptive to that, he will. He'll do that. So we don't need to be concerned about what it is that, that, that we're going to say. In part because who we are speaks for itself. Now, there are things that it's important for us to do and to say to help people to understand the impact that having a relationship with Jesus Christ has had on our lives. And I hope that each of us could talk about that. And that we can answer the question, I'm a Christian because. We have the good fortune, we have the good fortune of serving a Savior who is there with us. So we do not need to be concerned. Jesus will provide the content for the proclamation. And he assures us that the content he provides will be compelling and indisputable. One of the things that I've discovered about having arguments with people is that um, when the argument begins to deteriorate into ad hominems, abusive and circumstantial, which is things like name-calling and designations about my person or my character that's less than complimentary, that they've run out of counter-arguments. Whenever people begin to attack you, they, they've run out of counter-arguments. So I consider that a good place to be. So Jesus says that he'll provide the content for the proclamation. But then he says that we're to expect to be betrayed, even by those that are closest to us, including family members. There have been times in the course of human history when we've seen that and when we've heard stories about that. Such betrayals were quite prominent in, not in Nazi Germany in the years surrounding the Second World War. In the Inferno, Dante talks about there being layers of hell. And in his scheme, the deepest, the deepest layer of hell is reserved for those who betray others' trust. Betrayal has to do with trust. One of the most heinous aspects of molestation And it sickens me to think about 
the church's involvement in that and the leaders within the church that have been involved in that. But at the core of that is betrayal. It's a betrayal of trust. And one of the most heinous aspects of molestation is the betrayal of that trust. So Jesus says there will be times when those that you have trusted will betray your trust. Now here's the good news in that. You won't be alone. As Christians, Jesus is always with us. You'll notice that every Sunday before the deacon reads the gospel, proclaims the gospel to you all, he comes to me and I give him a blessing. And in that blessing, I say a prayer. And the prayer is, may the, may the Lord be on his lips and in his heart as he proclaims the gospel to God's people. Jesus also predicts that some of his listeners will be martyred for the faith. You will be universally hated because of your affiliation with Jesus. That's paradoxical in as much as Jesus is about love. But others will hate you because of it. That occurred during the fall of Rome, which, by the way, has some of the remarkable similarities to our own socio-political climate. We've talked about that here many times. Christians were blamed in ancient Rome for the fragmentation of the fabric of Roman culture. Do you know why? Christians were hated because of their criticism and disapproval of moral behavior in their society. And their disapproval caused divisions. Sound familiar? Even though there would be serious threats, Jesus assures his listeners that not even a hair on their head will perish. Through your endurance of the suffering that is imposed upon you, you will gain your souls. This sentence is really important. How do we gain our souls? How do our souls develop into what God wants them to be? Are you ready for this? That happens through endurance to suffering. Do you want spiritual strength? Endure suffering. It'll do it every time. There are several lessons for us today in these readings. First, do the right thing. Do the right thing by God. God has given us a structure for how to worship, there's no need for us to be investigating new and exciting liturgies to make worship more interesting, exciting, or pleasurable. There's no need for that. Next week, our liturgy will follow the new Act in the Book of Common Prayer. Interestingly, you'll discover it's not new. It's really quite old. There are two Eucharistic prayers in it. 
One is the Anglican Standard Prayer, which is essentially the liturgy in the 1662 prayer book. Now, the language is updated, right? So, so it doesn't have 17th century language. But it is the liturgy, the 1662 prayer book. The second Eucharistic prayer is called the Ancient Text, which is based on the 4th century liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. The new prayer book is, in actuality, the old prayer book. So, the first takeaway message is, be obedient, follow the structure that God provided for you. The second lesson is about being industrious and effortful. St. Paul's saying that work's important because it allows us to take responsibility for ourselves. The third lesson, interestingly enough, is about postmodernism. Expect deconstruction. The temple will be destroyed. One stone won't be left standing on another. Just know that when the tragedies begin to occur, you're not alone. Jesus will be your companion on the path. Each Sunday, we participate in that promise. When you come to Holy Communion and you partake of the bread and the cup, you are ingesting the body and blood of Christ. When you leave here, his body and blood go with you in some mysterious way. I can't explain to you how that happens. I don't know. I don't have any ideas. I, I have never been keyed in. It's a mystery. His presence in you will make it possible for you to face whatever happens this week in your life. I promise you that. Even things as heinous as being betrayed by someone you trust. Jesus will be there in the midst of it. And he'll be there because he's there as a part of you. He will never, ever, ever forsake or abandon you. And you can depend on him to be there for him at your point of need. So that when we talk to people about the gospel, we communicate Christ to them at their point of need. And that's the proclamation that Jesus will give us. <laughs>